They don't have guests, they have contestants. 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt is the perfect game show and talk show hybrid that you need. Check out 10 Questions exclusively on Spotify. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. Arby's better not catch you slacking on snacking with their new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps. And your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey, mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Hello and welcome to Group Chat, the Ringer's weekly NBA group discussion, where unlike LeBron, we all need more rest. I am Justin Barrier. Joining me today, Jonathan Jarks. I'm excited. We have a Ringer legend on with us. It's true. Are you talking about Rob Mahoney? Because he's here every week. Not a legend. But I'll take it. Okay. We're talking about the other ringer legend. That is Dan Devine. What is up, my friend? Uh, not a whole lot. I mean, this is a, it's the first time anyone has ever called me a legend without being sarcastic, like really brutally. So I'll take that, Justin. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, only only moderate sarcasm. It's like legendary, you know? legendary asshole, legendary, you know, <laughs> slob, you know, things like that for sure. But well, no, talk this about I'll your take. hair, Dan, if you want to talk about that. If you want to talk about how, 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 how you know, luscious and glorious it looks, that's all, you know, you can see it in full uh, HD video. That's that's what's happening right now. It's been a a full quarantine year of no cutting hair, so uh, it's it's getting kind of wild back here. It's gorgeous. Sharks was just saying how jealous he is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do locks for love for you, man. I'll share some. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. So on today's podcast, we are going to get into some reserve debates for uh, the All Star Game, which is Tuesday night, not Thursday night, which is what I told the rest of the staff <laughs> as we planned uh, the week of content. So apologies to Zach Cram off the top of the podcast. Uh, all right, we've got some news, but we're going to get through this quickly because I really want to get to our reserve debates uh, with our expert all-star selection artist here, Dan. Um, last night, the Lakers lost for the third straight time. Uh, it was against the Washington Wizards. It was in overtime. It was a goddamn mess. Uh, they're now 9-7 and seven at home, which is really, really weird uh, for a team that just won the title and is otherwise pretty incredible. Dan... Are you worried about the Los Angeles Lakers? Uh, I think we can all say that this is the whole season's over. It's a wash. Um, <laughs> you know, give the like, award the the title to the Jazz and let's all go home. Um, I mean, I guess we're all already home. Um, no, I think the the worrying thing to me is not that the Lakers are going through a, a downturn right now. I mean, they don't have Anthony Davis. They don't have Dennis Schroeder. Uh, LeBron's kind of the only guy on the roster that can really regularly create stuff right now. So I think that's you know, to be expected. The issue for me is this, the amount of, uh, of work that LeBron's having to put in right now. Um, it's crazy. I was checking it this morning. Only Julius Randle and Fred Van Vliet have played more minutes than LeBron this season. He's averaging 38 minutes a game over the last 10 games. Like that's three legends, three legends. I mean, yeah, we're, we're just stacking <laughs> legend on legend on legend in this podcast. Um, but it's like the, the, Every every year we talk about this and whether LeBron should load manage more, whether the Lakers should do that, whether LeBron's interested in that, whatever. Um, if it keeps going this way, it's going to be an issue that we're going to talk about again and again. Did you see his quotes from last night after the Wizards game? Yeah, he's not a fan of it. He's not a fan yeah. of the idea. There's, a, I believe, there was a Jim Boylan punch clock. <laughs> My favorite party goes, I'm resting now talking to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like Zuckerberg in the, uh, the social network. You, get, you have the minimum amount of my attention is what LeBron, <laughs> what LeBron is affording us in those post-game moments. 
I do feel like LeBron has been campaigning for the MVP since the last one was like decided even before that. And so I definitely get that. And like, it's a typical athlete thing to be like, no, I actually don't need to sit. I could play 48 minutes for 82 games a year. But yeah, you could definitely see it on the court. Um, I guess if you want to play devil's advocate uh, about the home record specifically, which I think is the really weird part about this, four of the recent losses came without AD. But then there's this long running thing that Bill Orham wrote about on The Athletic that this is a problem dating back to last season where LeBron not playing those minutes is a concern. I guess the question is, do we think Dennis Schroeder is like the answer to that? Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, it's not injury, it's compounding injury. It's, you know, if you're going to have LeBron on the court, who are the two guys you absolutely cannot afford to lose for this offense to be functional? And they're Anthony Davis and Dennis Schroeder. Like, that's, that is your entire capacity for non-LeBron offense. And you can see it even, you know, when he's dishing off to guys and practically begging them to hit shots, to make plays, to give him anything to work off of or play off of. It's just not there right now. And you can be the best defensive team in the league and still, you know, put up bricks, hit roadblocks, have every kind of offensive impediment you can imagine, even with LeBron on your team at this age, if he's going to be, you know, asked to do this much stuff. I guess the question is like, does this, maybe the concern is like they don't have a traditional big three. So when we're talking about, you know, maybe a series with the Nets in the finals, the Clippers shoot the ball, like their whole team is Steph Curry. Are they a less potent offensive team than some of the other contenders, even when they're fully healthy? Well, first off, I'm not going to brook any KCP slander on this podcast, Sharks. I think we've established in the bubble that there is a big three, and it's those three letters, KCP. <laughs> KC3, which is what uh, the Lakers broadcast has taken to do. And I was there when they first started doing it. And oh, who's the guy? It's Bill um, McDonald. And he did it. And he turns to his, his analyst. He's like, KC3, you like that? And I was like... This is literally what every other broadcast does, but uh, props to him for for finally finding yeah, it. Yeah, fetch is going to happen one of these days. It's going to come around. Um, no, I, I think it's it's a valid point, John. I mean, like at a certain point, you get into the playoffs and you don't necessarily need that third creator if you're able to have everything else working on all cylinders. We saw that uh, in the bubble, in the, the postseason run, when it was sort of matchup dependent and lineup uh, specific on who needed to be the guy that stepped up in a certain context. Uh, KCP did it more often, but they were different sort of different moments for different players. Um, I think you'd expect some, uh, something similar this time around, especially if you're getting what looks like kind of the best version of Kyle Kuzma we've probably seen as a complimentary guy who is still able to go get you a bucket. That's, you know, always been his, his you know, key, uh, keystone skill. Um, but what that looks like now in the, you know, the doldrums of a winner when uh, the operate uh, these sort of operating principles of the uh, of the underpinning the offense aren't there. You can't really turn to Montrez Harrell in the same way and ask him to create that that stuff against other first units to the same degree. So it can get messy. It can get ugly. It could wind up being a problem in the postseason. But uh, at this point, I, I feel like uh, I've been cowed into just saying I'm going to believe that somebody's going to beat LeBron and AD four times in seven games when I see it. Yeah, so they're currently tied for second with the Clippers, uh, the Jazz, as Dan alluded to before, on a tear. You'd assume just what, the way they're just like reeling off wins, uh, especially at home, that they would probably end up the one seed. Uh, so there is a concern that like maybe the Lakers' path to the finals is a little bit tougher, but yeah, we've seen LeBron kind of power through that before. So uh, we'll keep track of that, but I think we can all agree we're not too, too concerned about it. Uh, let's flip quickly now to a team who's currently on the outside of the playoff field, uh, the 14 and 15 Dallas Mavericks. There were two separate rumors suggesting that Christoph Porzingis could be uh, available via trade and specifically uh, that the Mavs were talking to the Warriors. Uh, Mark Cuban has since uh, come out and debunked this as inaccurate. As we all know, Mark Cuban only tells the truth. Dan, what do you think about this? It's a little bit of a weird pairing here, Mavs and Warriors. Do you see an obvious connection? And if so, like who is going to the Mavs in that situation? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the names that rush to the top of your head are just the other big money names, right? So it's Andrew Wiggins. If you're kind of the Warriors or if you're, if you're Dallas, you're maybe selling the Warriors on. This is a way for you to sell high on Wiggins and get, um, you know, a, a higher end stretch five who can protect the rim for the future. Uh, and then that in his place, um, there's, I guess, injured Clay Thompson. But that seems like 
just a fundamental non-starter given what Clay Thompson is and has been to the Warriors organization. Uh, and Dray- similarly, Draymond, I mean, like the argument, I guess, would be Draymond's decline when it is already there on offense. And when it comes on defense, it might come on like a ton of bricks. So get out from under that while you can. And also give Luca a defensive, you know, uh, counterpoint. So someone who's a genius on the defensive end to the same degree that Luca is on the offensive end. The, but playing matchmaker, it seems like a bridge too far for me. It seems like a bunch of interesting names that you can kind of try to match up together. But um, when push came to shove, I would be really surprised if Golden State would would entertain that. I'm not saying this is out there, but are the Mavs at a point where you know, clearly they want to compete? Luca is good enough to put a playoff team on his shoulders. Are they in a place where they can entertain something like Kerstaps Porzingis for a package built around not Wiggins or any of these money players, but the Wolves pick? Like, are they in a are mm. they in a position where they're still young enough to chase draft capital? Or do they have to be looking for guys who can play and contribute at a playoff level right now? I don't think that's the worst idea in the world because, Justin, as you've talked about a million times, when you have the franchise guy, (laughs) AD in New Orleans, right? And you try to go all in too early, then down the road. But really, like, Golden State just drafted James Wiseman. What are they going to use another center for? That doesn't really make sense. Well, the the West is big now. You know, it's like the inversion of the Mike Woodson quote, the West is big, man. And maybe if you had two big men who were both unicorns, my you know, my as my six-year-old daughter would inform me, two unicorns is better than one. So maybe there there's a a <laughs> compounding interest thing there in terms of shooting and size. Yeah. Uh I think it's an interesting idea trading for a pick because as we talked about in in past episodes, it's like where is this next number two gonna come from? They had cleared all this cap space. Uh, or at least set themselves up to have cap space uh, coming this summer in order to potentially t- chase Giannis. But like, who's that next guy? And this is a situation a couple other teams are facing. Like, is it Oladipo? Uh, is it, I don't know, Kawhi Leonard? That seems like even more of a pipe dream than Giannis was. So it, I don't know where it's going to come from. And I do love the idea of them kind of uh, taking a step back and being like, we have a 20-something wonderkin. Like, let's actually... Uh, make the right move here because if we make a misstep now, this is something that could potentially lead to him leaving, you know, like a couple years down the line. It's crazy as that sounds. I would say the first thing, like with Rick Carlisle there, I highly doubt they're making any future-oriented trades to bring in a teenager for him to yell at for three years. (laughs) And then I I think we should have a KP conversation, I think. Like, where is he? Can I just say quickly, like... The thing with Carlisle, since Luca has been there, is hasn't he been the one to change, not Luca? Like that seems like the the storyline that's been running through there, where it's like Carlisle has ta- had to take a step back and allowed Luca to be Luca, to be wild, and to make turnovers sometimes in order to get the good stuff. I I wonder if the calculus in Dallas wouldn't be let's prioritize Luca, not Rick. I don't think it's because Carlisle had some come to Jesus moment and he's going to buy a zoo and run a daycare and, and his life is now raising children. Like. <laughs> So much of this is, you know, and Carlisle has been very upfront about this. Luca is the kind of talent that changes you, that you you have to tailor your approach to him specifically. Now, if that if the other young player is a number one draft pick kind of talent, maybe he that carries over. But otherwise, I think it's kind of Luca in one category, all other teenagers and young 20-somethings and rabble rousers in another. And to your point, John, you were saying, you know, maybe it's time to have a KP conversation. I, the, the my initial reaction to this news was, why are we doing this now? It's been 500 minutes after coming off a me, uh, meniscus surgery and like a long layoff in a context of a pandemic where half the rotation was out for a long period of time where you can't practice or like work out together all that much. We've barely seen what the Mavericks kind of aim to be so far. And there's all sorts of lineup noise and stuff too. Like, Yes, they've been outscored with Luca and and Chris Tapps on the floor together. But then, like, you lop off Dorian Finney-Smith from those minutes, and all of a sudden, you're back to like plus six and a half per one hundred. So it, there's there's questions about like how all of those confounding variables kind of work together. And so, and you guys, I think you know Rob and, and John, you're both more uh, you know closer Mavs watchers than I am. I think. Does it seem to you like this is the time to have the "is he really worth it" kind of conversation? Well, to me, this is, you know, this is news. This is juicy. This is the kind of thing that gets people talking. It's also doing your job if you're a general manager. Like, if you've been watching the Mavs this season and watching Chris Dapps in quicksand on the perimeter trying to guard anybody, 
really, you know, I think dropping off at least a half level, if not a full level in terms of rim protection, even putting aside his availability and injuries and what he gives you offensively, you have to have this conversation. You, ha- you have to constantly be monitoring, okay, if we do need to pull the ripcord here, what does that look like? What could we potentially get for him? Because Porzingis has not been yet the player that they need him to be. And so if you're not monitoring that situation closely as Dallas's front office, you're, you're failing in your capacity to run that team. Yeah, I mean, the other thing too, like what Dan was saying though, you're selling about as low as humanly possible right now. So it is tough. Like, let's not forget, in the bubble, he was getting like 30 points a game before his knee injury. So I think if you're Dallas, it's not about like, you just, you kind of went all in on KP two years ago and you're still in the same place you were then. Either he's going to figure it out, he can be the player he's shown potential to be, or his body's going to break down. He just can't move anymore. I don't, who's trading for that contract at that size with his injury history, right? And giving you value. That's just, it's hard to fathom. Yeah, which is why it kind of seems to me like the best path forward there is try to get everybody right and see what you actually you know what you have in house before. But but you know to your to your your point, Rob, this is doing your due diligence. It's you know every, every team is always asking and trying to like having exploratory conversations about everybody who's not their number one guy. So I mean, it stands to reason from that perspective. But I, I think uh, Charks is right. Like finding finding a home that makes sense that gives you what you need to pursue something of value around Luca now that's better and more enticing than what you hoped to be getting in Porzingis as that like interior rim protector and stretch option and pick and pop partner and all that it seems like you're trying to solve a lot of problems in one fell swoop and not really having an optimal way of doing it yeah, I think it's important to note that in both stories, the specific language was gauging interest, uh, which, I mean, this could just have been, you know, uh, the Mavericks calling around when they didn't have power and they just re- wanted to, like, shoot the shit, you know? <laughs> um, I think the, the the probably more interesting storyline to this is that the Knicks were probably right. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but let's, I think at, at the best case scenario for the Chris Stops era in Dallas is he will constantly be nagged by injuries and you'll constantly have to deal with the fact, well, is he playing this time? Are we, are we, can we count on him to be in this playoff series? Like that is a huge, huge obstacle. And like maybe it's better than not having a unicorn three point shooting, like seven foot nine uh, fucking like Leviathan out there. But on the other hand, like, Availability is also nice. Look, it's very revealing that that's the optimal situation you can imagine, <laughs> Justin. The, the rainbows in the sky version of Chris Porzingis' future is being constantly injured. <laughs> Justin, always known for his optimism and good cheer. I will say, though, in the, in, uh, in the, the service of optimism and good cheer, if you were trying to like script out how that trade would work best for the Knicks, this is sort of what it would look like. It would be... He's not quite as, uh, Porzingis is not quite as good or doesn't make quite the fit that you would hope for in Dallas. Um, the Mavericks are not quite as good. And so the value of those future first round draft picks increases and you're not the one stuck holding the $158 million bag while developing some other talent. And then like making able to make ancillary moves on the side, like flipping De- uh, Dennis Smith Jr. for Rose and stuff like that. So there's an argument to be made that when you follow the transactional chain, this could wind up with the Knicks looking pretty good. Let's. I think that's about as much qualifying as I need to Dan, do in this context. <laughs> I could, I could see the optimism just poking through your comments. Just, just embrace it, my friend. This is going well. The Knicks are back. Just, just, just say it. They're back, baby. They're back. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's three p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two for five dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's 2 for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. All right, let's uh, let's use that as an excuse to pivot to our all-star reserve picks. Uh, let's start in the East here. So all-star starters were announced last Thursday. Reserves and probably are going to be announced uh, today on Tuesday. Uh, we're going to go through some of the more interesting debates on the reserve side of things. Um, so just quickly to go through what we have so far here, the East starters, which were, as I mentioned, announced uh, Kyrie Irving, 
Bradley Beal, Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid. So Dan does a piece for us every year where he makes his pick. He has an official vote uh, with the NBA. And so what we're going to do here is I'm going to run through Dan's picks. We're going to point out the guys who we all have the consensus opinion on, who we all think should be there. And then we're going to target the open spots and try to fill them. And so Dan's picks were uh, Chris Middleton, Julius Randle, our guy, uh, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, James Harden, Zach Levine, and Fred Van Vliet. Now, I'm going to assume, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong here, that we all agree that Middleton, Tatum, Brown, and Harden should make it. Agreed. Julius Randle? No, right? I'm a no, and it pains me to pit one playmaking big against the other, but this is kind of where I would go Adebayo over Julius Randle. And I think it's it's tough for Randle just because Adebayo is another candidate who does so many of the things that Randle does well at the same level or a little bit better that it neutralizes his case a little bit. And there's there could be room for both. I could I could entertain that argument. But when you're looking at them head-to-head for one of these front court spots, I see Adebayo as a guy who's a little bit more efficient, who's a better defender. And, and let's give Randall credit for his defense this season. I think it's been much improved. But the Heat are at the point now where they're just a game back of the Knicks, despite being hit by injuries, by COVID, about as hard as any team in the league. Adebayo's been the one consistent piece there keeping them afloat. And if we're going to reward a guy keeping kind of a iffy offense afloat on a defense-first team, which both of these guys are, I lean towards the guy who I just empirically think is the better player in Adebayo. Yeah, I mean, I think if you start with that, like who who's the better player and you break it down, I guess the other guy in this kind of range is DeMontis Sabonis. So he's probably, he's also in your 6'9", bully ball power forward, hub of the offense. I'd imagine of those three guys, only one might get in. Yeah, that was that was exactly the bucket that I kind of wound up in when I started going through these things. And it was like you're doing the uh, as surprising nobody. I overthought this. Um, But as you go through like the, you know, player comparison finder and basketball reference and you're looking at all the different stats and comparing advanced stuff, there is a to me, the the. I think the the uh, the Adebayo argument is really compelling because I I agree I think he's just a better player than Julius Randle, um, in terms of I guess impact individually this season. Uh, my argument there was just that at a certain point the the Knicks were uh, have been a better team than the Heat, and yes, there is a contextual aspect to that of one team got hit by COVID and one team did not, and one team uh, had a best player that uh, wasn't available for most of the beginning of the season, and Jimmy Butler. And who now, now, of course, Jimmy Butler is going to wind up looking like a really stupid name to not have on this list because he's been amazing since he's kind of came back. But um, at the point where I made that pick, it was like, Randall doesn't really have another guy like that. There's no other player on the Knicks that can shoulder any of that load uh, as much as, you know, I, I am optimistic about RJ Barrett and Emmanuel quickly. They're not those guys yet. Um, so I thought that Randall as like the lone sort of standard bearer there for a team that was better and in playoff position at that at the point that I made that pick was kind of the right idea. And Sabonis, same deal. Like you, you line up the stats for Sabonis and Randall, and it's like eerie. It's almost exactly alike down, down to the fact that they're lefties who bruise you inside. Like it's really wild. Um, I think that all of those are completely reasonable picks. Um, Randall was just sort of like a, a, a hair ahead at that moment. But I agree. I, I think in a vacuum, I take Adebayo and maybe Sabonis as well as better players than Randall. But uh, we're not in a vacuum. We're in this season. I think it's a really fair argument in terms of him being the lone guy there. And it's something we have to consider with this stuff. It's so tough for all of these bigs, though, because as we'll get into with these wild card spots, the guard depth in the East is, you know, that list runs super long right now in terms of credible all-star guards. And I have a feeling both of those wild card spots, one way or another, are going to end up going to guards. Yeah, we should mention that Dan gave his ballot in, what, a week ago? Monday? Last Monday? Yeah, and then since that point, all of the guys that I didn't put on have been absolutely insane. And some of the guys that I, <laughs> some, some of the guys that I did put on uh, have stumbled a little bit. So, hey, they're I reading will, your stuff, man. You're I'm creating it, content. It could be that. It could be that I'm motivating people. It could also just be that the arc of the universe bends toward me getting dunked on, one or the other. Yeah, this is one of the unique challenges of this year where there's so f- there are fewer games than usual. And so even in the span of a week, things can fluctuate a bunch. And I think that brings up the interesting conversation of how much you value 
winning and teams that are, are being successful because one, like in both conferences, like everything is just jumbled up. There's like a win or two that are the difference between certain teams. And so I don't know, like, so on the one hand, like Randall is the number one guy there and he's leading uh, a Knicks resurgence, but like Sabonis is on a better team. And so should how much do you factor that in there? It's really, really messy. I lean toward Randall for the reasons Dan did is specifically because like he is the guy there. It does feel like Sabonis has more help. I know this gets into the really stupid MVP conversation where like we, we like give more points to the guy who has a worse team. But if you look at the numbers, they're eerily similar. Uh, Sabonis has been more efficient and like they have also been struck by injuries and, and other stuff. And so it's a similar case, but I would lean to him for that last front. Well, when spot. you talk about the standings being compressed, so like right, right now, Indiana is the number four seed and they're four games back of number one. Orlando is the number 12 seed and there's three games back of four. So that's eight teams within three games of each other. My thought is I get the idea of rewarding winning, but like I don't want to reward the sixth seed over the eighth seed. That seems a little... I mean, that's like literally the, the right day you make the vote. I, I can see one, two, and three making cases for, okay, they're a cut above. We can reward them. But to me, when you get to the middle of the pack, it's, these all teams are all the same, basically. And that, that's, that, yeah, that's what made it, made it really like pretty gnarly to do this is because once you start getting down to the, the hair splitting, you're talking about teams that have like remarkably similar you know, winning profiles or statistical profiles and like just a million dudes who are averaging 20 a game and a bunch of dudes who are at 50, 40, 90. Like the statistical inflation as offensive efficiency has risen is crazy at this point. So um, there's a lot of right answers and relatively few wrong ones, I think. But I am confident that we will settle on me having had most of the wrong ones. <laughs> Well, the the East is especially hilarious this season in terms of the valuing winning conversation because there are five teams over 500 right now. So I guess those five teams are getting a lot of all-stars or else we're, we're handing them out to the Knicks and the Heat and some of these teams at the bottom of the standings right now. Yeah. So what was Ben Simmons eligible at? Because this is another naughty part of the whole thing. Like, was he a guard or was he a forward? I'm, I'm pretty sure he was listed at guard um, on, on the official ballot. Um, but... I mean, if, if also, if you're looking for a player that best typifies wild card, maybe Ben Simmons is, is about the, 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 you know, definitional player of that capacity. It's true. So we, so we only have one available actual spot for uh, front quarter guard. And so where do we en- end up here? Rob, who are you going with? I go with Bam, but I also vote in case of a okay. tiebreaker. I think, I think Dan gets it. I I go I go to the All Star game. That would be a, listen. If you if you want to see entertaining basketball, put me on the court with nine NBA All Stars and see how it works out for me. Let's do it. He just really wants to go to the parties with some guy named the Baby, who I realize is different than oh. other just Baby. No 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 members. no. Justin, those those parties aren't happening. There are no parties at the All Star game this year. That's right. Sure. Um, so Dan, are you sticking with Julius Randle, or would you change your pick if if you had the chance? Uh, I'm st- I'm going to stick with Randall. I think that. I feel confident in, in that. I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to argue at all if Bam winds up there or Sabonis winds up there. But um, I, yeah, I think that there's something to be said for a player also like completely uh, subverting your expectations or, or outperforming your expectations. We kind of knew who, but Bam has improved significantly, no doubt. And Sabonis has been fantastic as like the, say, the key central piece of that. But no one saw Julius Randle doing this, not even like the most uh, optimistic uh, Knicks fan. And so I think there's something to be said for that too. But uh, it, 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 all those things can, can go together and you can wind up with a lot of great options. Sure. Sharks. I'll, I'll go Bam. Okay. Uh, so now we have two wild card spots. Dan picked Levine and Fred Van Vliet. Uh, Sharks, who do you want to talk about first? Do you want to do Ben Simmons? Yeah. I, I think Ben Simmons has to be on this list. The way he's played the last couple of weeks on offense combined with his defense. I mean, talking about a two-way monster at six foot ten, who might be defensive player of the year. Like, I mean, yeah, Philly's number one seed. I think, to me, Simmons is a cut above some really good players in this category, but to me, he's got to be on this list. Yeah, I like him for the Van Vliet spot, but, I mean, first of all, bless Dan for having the wisdom and the moral (laughs) certitude to do what I could not, which was, I really wanted to find a place for Fred Van Vliet on this team. I think he's been incredible this season. I'm a great admirer of his work this year. Completely relentless player, great defender. He's like He checks all the boxes of what I want, and then you put him up, you know, Unfortunately, he gives up about a foot to Ben Simmons. <laughs> right. And uh, 
that's where things start to even out a little bit. And like, I, you know, I'm really just compelled by Simmons' defensive case more than anything. And, you know, the offensive stuff is what it is. I think we put Simmons in a category because he hasn't evolved that much offensively, but the player he was was already pretty good in a lot of settings, especially in terms of accelerating pace, creating open looks for his teammates, generating threes for other guys. Like, he does so much of the stuff you want that even if he's, you know, on, on one of those nights where he's only going to shoot six times just because he's doing enough for you that I, I still really like him there. But it's it's painful to leave Fred out after the season he's had, and especially now that the Raptors have, have surged a bit. Yeah, if, if I can just offer why I did that, because I had the exact same thought where I was like, damn, man, like this is really brutal to not have Ben Simmons on this team. Just, uh, it's kind of a tale of two seasons a little bit. Um, the first, uh, about the first month of the season, uh, Simmons was averaging like 12 points a game, shooting 51% from the floor and 62% from the line. And kind of you were there were more nights where you were like, even as he was doing all the things we're talking about on defense and with his, uh, his shot creation, it was like very clearly Joel Embiid is like dragging that team. And Tobias Harris was being discussed as like the second best guy on that team. And then the last 15 or so games, Simmons has gone supernova. And then the last five in particular, again, in part, since I had to write this damn list um, is because uh, he go he's like now he's, he's like 70 percent from the floor over his last five games and and something like 80 percent from the line, too, which is a huge issue. Like if all of a sudden Ben Simmons is going to start attacking the rim, finishing like 75 percent at the cup, getting to the line six or seven or eight times a game and converting there, it completely changes the complexion of what the Sixers could be. And he becomes a lot closer to the kind of player people have been desperate for him to be as they like look past what he already is. So um, you're absolutely right. I mean, if we if we were doing all defensive teams, he'd absolutely be first team this year. He may well be uh, in terms of perimeter defenders that it can go up into that Gobert, Miles Turner tier. He's right up there as well. Um, absolutely sensational season for him. And if I can be perfectly honest, part of why I wrote that and picked Van Vliet, the way sort of went the direction as I, I did, is I don't expect Van Vliet to make it. I don't think he's really going to. I think that what's going to happen as the coaches pick these rosters um, is that Simmons will make it maybe somebody, you know, so there will be some other more uh, offensive fireworks kind of players. Or as we said, you know, Bam might get one of those spots. Uh, Sabonis might get one of those spots. There are so many deserving candidates. Um, I thought it was kind of a good opportunity to say, hey, maybe you all aren't paying attention to what's happening over here. This is a team that's just on a permanent road trip in Tampa. The entire season has had to completely reimagine itself without its starting centers and starting big men from last year. Uh, you know, Charks had written about this earlier in the season, trying to figure out a new identity when Aaron Baines was clearly not it and Alex Len was clearly not it up front and play, you know, reor- reorienting around Chris Boucher and small ball. The one constant for them there has been Van Vliet on both ends of the court. So I was like, it was a little bit of a tip of a cap to a guy that I'm pretty sure is going to wind up on the outside looking in, but that, uh, you know, the impact metrics, the, a lot of the advanced stuff and also w- just watching night to night, he's been the re- the biggest reason that they're actually still in the fight. And, um, he may he, he's he, you if you stack him up next to Ben Simmons, one guy looks like an all star and one guy isn't. Um, but I thought there was maybe some value in saying uh, maybe we can expand that definition a little bit. But you're absolutely right. Simmons has been tremendous all season. Well, Dan, is there anyone else you want to call out just to make sure that they have an incredible next two to three weeks? Uh, R.J. Barrett. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> you know what? Uh, my, my, uh, me and my daughter, let's have a good two, three weeks. It's getting rough out here, man. It's getting pretty rough. So we got to do what we can to get th- past the one year point. And, uh, we'll see if Siobhan listens to this. I don't know if she's going to give us the download guys. I'm not, we'll see. Family <laughs> talk is great, Dan. Justin's always trying to shut it down. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Everybody eats their veggies. Everybody poops. It's great. Um, well, one thing I, I did want to bring up with with Simmons just quickly here is it's interesting, and, and this is uh, a benefit of not being someone who gets to pick these things, but gets to sit back and watch people pick them and then evaluate their picks and pick them to death, uh, pick them apart. Simmons's offensive numbers are eerily similar to his past two seasons, both of which he made the All-Star game. Now, you can make the case that like maybe we shouldn't just go based on the past because that's how mistakes happen. But if we're suggesting that like he's basically the same player, maybe even a more impactful defender this season on a better team. To me, that's a really airtight case uh, for him to make it again. And, and like to Chuck's point earlier, which I think is a really good one about like a one or two wins probably shouldn't sway our decisions. Like the Sixers are clearly a cut above in the East. They're currently the best team in the East. And so for me, like 
with this extra week that he's got on this tear, I think that's enough to push him in for at least one of these wild card spots. Um, but I think it's an interesting pivot to some of the offensive-minded guys here uh, because I was looking at Trey Young's case specifically, and it's a similar thing. Now, I believe last year he got in as a starter, which means that like he was probably helped a lot by fans. Um, and so I don't know specifically how much we could use that for his case, but the Hawks are better this year. He's putting up similar numbers. If anything, like that team has been a mash unit this entire year, and they would be dreadful offensively without him there. I have a hard time putting Levine ahead of him if we're saying that Young was good enough last year with this exact same case. So I fall on the same side as Dan with this in the sense that I, I prefer Levine to Trey Young's case. And it's for a few reasons. One of them, one of the most difficult things you can do in the NBA is put up incredible, efficient numbers basically with one hand tied behind your back. And that's, that's what Levine's situation is. When you don't have a game-managing guard to set you up to run offense, and Levine is still in a position where he's given the ball up, he's moving off the ball, he's doing all the stuff you would want him to do and putting up insane production for a team that, frankly, doesn't have the infrastructure to prop that up or even really to deserve it, given where their roster is right now. I just think he's radically overperforming anything you could reasonably expect from him. And to me, the comparison point for him is... Like we look at what Brad Beal did last season. We all agree he had a crazy productive offensive year. The Bulls are just way ahead of where that bad Wizards team was in terms of record. And Levine is 65% true shooting, which is nuts, versus a guy like Beal, when you operate that volume, was 58 true shooting. And that's good for that level. But what Levine is hitting is just a different stratosphere of stardom and production and ability given the context of his situation where Trey has control over so much of what the Hawks do. Levine doesn't, and he's still doing this, which is, I, I kind of end up giving him the nod for that. I mean, it's really incredible. He is unguardable. Like, there's not many guys in the league, but he is literally unguardable. The play I always come back to is a game against the Pelicans, and Levine's on a fast break, and Eric Bledsoe tries to, like, knock him off and give him like, one of those like, quick fouls, and Levine knocks him off. Because, like, this guy is swole now. He still has a 45-inch vertical. He still jumps 40 inches in the air. And he can shoot from anywhere. It's really, really... I just love watching him play, man. That guy is a bucket-getting machine in a way, like, few guys ever have been with the number of threes he takes. And I, th I think that part of that, too, it's sort of... It's a similar argument to me, for me with Randall, where it's like, yes, you Levine was putting up numbers last year and, ha and has been able to get buckets for a while. This is just different. It's an order of magnitude different in terms of what he's bringing to the table now than he has at any point. Um, I don't know. It's, you know, it's perhaps unfair to ding Trey Young for that. Like Trey Young is doing whatever he can to to carry that Hawks offense through all the other injuries they've had. They haven't, you know, they spent all that money this offseason. They made all those moves, and they have yet to see that full complement of talent on the roster at the same time. Uh, this for all, hardly any of the season, and then also lost DeAndre Hunter for you know like they they've been going through it, um, and so Trey has propped up some really rough outfits. But I, I think at a certain point, when somebody you can like you, you you're watching somebody take like a quantum leap in real time, and do it in ways that contribute to winning for a team that should be drawing dead almost every night, and it's like how do you at a certain point how do you not reward that? And I think it came to a point for me where most of the arguments against Levine were like, he's not as he's not that good a defender. I mean, are we going to put Trey Young in for his defense? Um, you know, he's uh, the the Hawk or the Bulls are not that good a team. I mean, are the Hawks uh, running away with the one seed? You know, and so it, it, they they reached a point where honestly, to me, Levine just w was over Young. Like it was that the 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 relevant question for me was more like do i want to put Trey in or Fred Van Vliet in and just for for my taste and the kind mean, um, our my editor Matt Dollinger made fun of me about this he was like this is the most dan divine aspect you can make is putting Fred Van Vliet in the all-star game over Trey Young um but it's true so that that was a tasting but for me Levine was just a cut above i actually i got a broader philosophical question for you just i love watching philosophy. the league watching the league this season I really do feel like 
you just need guys who can reel off 10, 15 points and really quick bursts. It feels like we've made the switch. This is an offensive league now. And like, you just got to have guys who can score really, really quickly. And because that's how games are swung, I feel like these days. It's just one guy just heating up. Like, I'll talk about with Devin Booker. In the game last night, uh, Suns versus Blazers, Booker had 17 points in the first quarter. And it was like, well, that's the game. Like, and it feels <laughs> like to me, that's where the league is moving. It's like these hyper-efficient volume scoring. I was going to say, well, as we talk about ringer legends, Zach Cram uh, wrote the, uh, last week about how this has become like the quintessential maker miss league now. The, the volume of three-point shooting and the, that being just something that is the determining factor to a large extent on what teams do, you know, which teams are going to win night to night. Uh, the Jazz are a pretty significant example of that. You know, they can look and they have looked in cer- at certain points in the last like week or so, like they're kind of dragging a little bit because they've just been on one. And then they go and for five minutes, they just rip off a 26-2 run and that's your ball game. Because if you're able to create those shots and knock them in at a, a high level at a quick pace, you can just bury another team before they can even take a, take a breath. And so uh, Booker, is, Booker and Levine, guy, uh, Beal, Harden, Kyrie, KD, you know, whatever. These are guys that, are, that just are that uh, personified, you know, and so... Uh, the problem that we face now as people picking this sort of these sort of lists is that there's like 50 of these dudes and they're uh, so we got to fit them into uh, 12 aside uh, with, you know, the holdovers of guys like LeBron and Kawhi and stuff. It's it gets hard, man. It gets really tough. Yeah, I wonder if that specifically isn't the argument for Trey Young, if this is becoming more common that everybody is scoring in the mid 20s, the high 20s. Do we look for other things? And with both Levine and Young, it's definitely not going to be defense, as you guys laid out. And I do wonder if the playmaking aspect of this does tip the scales in favor of Trey over Levine. Trey obviously has some empty assists and um, definitely some empty calorie statistics just overall, but he is averaging, I think it's like 10 assists per 36 minutes. And that's something that Levine hasn't quite mastered. Maybe not his specific role, but... That's another point in favor of Young. And I do wonder if what we're reacting to is that Levine in this season is over is exceeding expectations in the same way Trey did last season. And I almost wonder if like it comes down to where we're setting the bar for each player. And if that's the case, it gets into this really nebulous sort of spot where it's like, well, does what we say in preseason just completely color how we're interpreting everything in the league? And so I guess if I'm looking at them just purely based on raw statistics and resumes, I would lean Trey there in favor of Levine, even though I could see, like like Dan is saying, this is splitting hairs upon splitting hairs. One thing I think it was notable in this conversation, and I looked into this originally because I saw that Jalen Brown was second in media voting, but fifth in player voting in terms of the starting spots for the All-Star team. I thought, okay, that's that's weird. That's a little notable because I thought Jalen Brown's had a stellar season. To me, he was a lock for the starting lineup given the season he's had. When I looked at it, one of the things I noticed was the players who were above Jalen Brown for the East backcourt spots, Bradley Beal obviously made it. Kyrie Irving made it. James Harden totally makes sense, would be in there unequivocally if play, you know people weren't discounting him based on blowing up the Rockets. And Zach Levine was the other one. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. That, that's interesting in terms of what players are, are valuing. Just as notable, Trey Young, 11th place voting in East, in East <laughs> backcourt players, which, I mean, if you talk to guys in the league, you can get a little bit of a whiff of this in terms of what they think of Trey Young sometimes. Uh, but he, you know, it, again, I don't know how much stock to put into player voting. Some people take it seriously. Some very clearly do not. Like maybe Zach Levine's votes were just the Bulls. I don't know. Uh, but I thought it, it certainly jumped off the page a yeah. little bit. I mean, I think it's pretty clearly the foul drawing. Like that is what has become so polarizing is the backup foul shot. He's, he's, he's mastered. That's that's an interesting like data point, but I think if we went by that logic, like Quinn Cook and DeAndre Jordan would be starting in the All Star game. <laughs> like this could just come down to the fact that Levine is like at John Wall's parties in L.A. during the summer, you know, <laughs> and then just like people are circulating. But let's get Quinn Cook in there. I don't have any argument against that. <laughs> right, he's a free agent now, so he's available. Maybe he could spot on this podcast as our fifth. Um, all right, let's uh, let's try to wrap up the East here. So. And wild cards, I'm going with Ben Simmons and Trey Young. Uh, Rob, who are you going with? I go Simmons-Levine. Okay. Sharks? I'm going to go Simmons-Levine. 
Okay. And Dan, are you sticking with Levine and Van Vliet? I'm sticking with Fred Van Vliet because somebody has to, man. It's a very Brooklyn pick for sure, Dan. So <laughs> uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Western side of things. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. All right, we're back. Uh, We're going to talk about the West now. So briefly, starters who were picked Already, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, and Kawhi Leonard. Dan's reserve picks, uh, he has Anthony Davis, Paul George, Rudy Gobert, Damian Lillard, and Mike Conley amongst the front courts and the guard spots. And in his wild cards, he has Donovan Mitchell and Chris Paul. Now, the wrinkle here is that Anthony Davis most likely, or almost assuredly, will not be playing in this All-Star game uh, because of his injury that we outlined at the top of the show. So there is theoretical... Specifically, uh, four spots open here. Do we want to confirm the locks first in terms of who's like really in there? Oh, sure. Yeah, right. Yes. Uh, so I wrote down Davis, George, Gobert, Lillard. Do we all agree? Agreed. Just wanted to make yeah. sure. Okay. Uh, and so we're going to try to fill Davis's spot. Uh, Rob, would you pick Zion? I think this is, I think we should save this for last because I think this is, we fill it, we fill Ooh. out the roster and in, you know, we role play Adam Silver here. We put on our suit, we shave our heads. And we try, you know, we try, we see who's left, and of that group, we'll pull plug someone in. Well, if we're role playing out okay. of silver, it's going to be a pretty easy pick. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, my issue with that is just all the other guys I want to pick are guards, <laughs> so <laughs> that's why this one is really easy. Um, well, do you want to bring up another front court guy? I mean, I think the pick probably will end up being Zion Williamson, if we're all being honest with ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, and I, I think it's like. There are not many certain things in life at this moment, but giving Adam Silver the chance to put Zion Williamson on national TV in an all-star game feels like a pretty sure thing. Just don't don't begrudge us a little pageantry. I was just trying to build up some suspense, <laughs> Justin. I appreciate it. Um, Charks, you're, on, you're in on Zion as well? Yeah, I mean, I think since they went point Zion, it's it's been remarkable. Just, I mean, this is kind of what we all hoped watching him at Duke. Because last year as a rookie, they were using him more as a post guy, more as a finisher. But he's got enough ball handling and playmaking to get to where he wants to go on the floor. And like now the game is just so simple. He starts the three-point line. Either he gets a screen or he just drives directly at the basket. And like either you give one guy and he scores or you crowd him and he passes. There was a game, the game against the Celtics on Sunday cracked me up where he just dribbled right through Tristan Thompson's chest, knocked him to the ground and scored, then got an and one. It's just like, this is just unfair. The new Sharks beat is the collision of bodies. Who is pushing who off? Who's bumping who? <laughs> I love it. I'm into this. So since the dawn of Point Zion, which for the sake of this is, uh, we're going to say is February 5th, he is averaging 28 points, five and a half rebounds, four and a half assists on 66, 33, 76 splits. The Pelicans are five and five, and they have the second best offense in the NBA, which considering like what a train wreck they were for the first half of the season is, is something. Um, and as we're saying, there isn't much competition for this spot. Very odd that the West, uh, considering recent history, we just don't have enough guys to fill a certain spot, but Zion seems like a runaway, uh, I think is what we're saying. But 
That brings us to a guard spot. Dan, you have Mike Conley. I do. A guy who, I don't know if you've heard this before, has not made an all-star game. We're going to have to fact check before. that. I'm not positive that that's, you know, <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have, you know I'm just going to go back and read every story written about Mike Conley over the last, you know, seven years and just make sure that that anecdote is in all of them. Sure, sure. Uh, so make the case for our good friend Mike here. Um, well, I think it starts with the... It, it, this is a little bit more in the weeds. It's all, it's because you know the, the points per game assist numbers, the minutes per game, like their their individual box score stats are not overwhelming. They're good, but they're not. You know they they don't pop off the page in the way that uh, you know Donovan Mitchell scoring does or De- Devin Booker scoring does. Um, I think it's just the, the, when you look at the the impact on winning, right? You know, he, they, it's a little bit difficult to disentangle at times because Quinn Snyder has tied him to Rudy Gobert and Gobert has been such a world breaker on defense. But even when Conley has played without Mitchell or without Gobert in relatively limited minutes, the Jazz have been awesome. And so you start stacking up like all of the advanced uh, impact metrics, the really good, if not overwhelming box score numbers, the fact that the Jazz continue to be good no matter whether he's with the other all-star caliber players on the roster or not. And it kind of feels, it felt to me like the picture that it was, it was that was sort of coming into focus was he's just been friggin' awesome. And he's really good and a really important player on the team that is by far the best team in the NBA so far this season. And so I don't necessarily go all in for the best team has to get a certain number of spots. Um, I, I kind of was, I tend to look more just at individual cases, but I think that if we're talking about who contributes to that overwhelming success that Utah's had, I think you can make a fair case that even you know, before he went down with injury, that Conley was as important in the beginning of the season. He might've been their best player for the first like 15 games of the season, um, as anybody else. So, uh, and then there was also, I mean, again, to be honest with you, a, a bit, a bit of a ceremony to it where it was like. Mike Conley has been this good for a long time, and there's always been a reason why he hasn't made the game. This is, I think, the best presentation for why he should. And so let's, you know, go with that and, you know, say later for some other guys that are going to have many more opportunities moving forward. I could see Rob is just salivating, waiting to talk about the Jazz. Go ahead, Rob. Well, I think what, what makes this stuff fun is when you're talking about also, you're talking about what are the lenses through which we view the game. That said... Whatever lens you watch the Utah Jazz through, if you haven't seen Mike Conley as the most reliable driver of that offense, I don't know what team you're watching. Like he, he has been that instrumental to one of the most potent offenses in the NBA. And as, as Dan touched on, it, this, this spot and whether you consider Conley to be a real, realistic candidate or not is kind of a box score litmus test. And it's, are you, putting, are you putting your value on, can this guy give me 20 or is this guy contributing to winning and driving the most dominant team in the NBA so far. To me, that's why Conley gets this spot and is well-deserving of it. What if you were watching the Jazz between February 7th and February 17th? Would he have been the driver of that offense? No, because he wasn't playing. (laughs) And that is, uh, I do think this comes down to, Justin, like the teams they beat, they beat Pacers, Celtics, Bucks, Heat, Sixers, Clippers, and they won those games by double digits, 15, 20 points. So that's, I mean, to further your Pretty point. good. Yeah, I almost feel like Rudy Gobert deserves two spots in this because <laughs> of what he's doing for that off- uh, for that defense. And it's funny, so uh, they beat the Hornets last night and George Nang had like seven for seven from three-pointers. And so he got the walk-up interview. And the first thing he said was like, yeah, Rudy does everything and makes all of our job easier. I feel like he's like Vince Wilfork on the Patriots back in the day where he's just like occupying like five guys and then everybody else just shoots like, 28 three-pointers and breaks records and whatnot. Um, But I do think the Jazz deserve two spots here. Three seems a bit much considering the competition elsewhere. And I would just barely lean Mitchell if only because of A, availability, which is shitty, I know. uh, But it's like something got to factor in. And because like just on a permanent basis, like Mitchell's playing more and like that probably knocks his efficiency stats down a little bit, which makes Conley's case more compelling. But I don't know if you could really like ding Mitchell for that because he's doing more. It's a really like thorny subject, but I would go Mitchell over Conley personally. I would say the case for Conley is that he has probably sacrificed the most on this team in terms of, because remember last season, the Mitchell Conley thing really wasn't working for most of the year because Conley was so used to being the ball dominant point guard. And he kind of had, he's had to adjust his game 
lower his statistics and let, you know, because Mitchell's got to cook, right? That's what he does. So Conley's kind of had to play off Mitchell. He's kind of like the glue guy. And I think if you're making the case for Conley, which I'm not sure I would make, the case is that we want to reward good to great players for sacrificing for winning because what are we doing otherwise, right? Like the whole point of this is to put together good teams and it's so hard to do because everybody wants their numbers. So Mike Conley is taking his numbers back so he can win. Counterpoint. I just want to see some dudes dunk in an all-star game. <laughs> like the, the, the reward is your team is good and you get to maybe go to the finals. That is, a, and that, that, you know, we talk about sort of philosophical arguments. That's a great point, Justin, because when I do this list, right, when I'm asked to, to make these votes and put these things together, I see my job as like who has had the best start to the season, who, which guys are most rewarding, uh, most deserving of a rec- of recognition and of reward. It's not who is the most exciting player to watch. And maybe it should be like if that was the cat, the, the, the um, criteria that we were asked to consider, like think about how many votes for Paul Millsap there were over the years and things like that, you know, like <laughs> was, you know, was Al Horford an all star stuff like that, not to dunk on the, you know, mid decade Hawks or whatever, but like the, there is a difference between who is the most like highlight generating compelling guy to watch in an individual like exhibition game and who's been the best player over the first 25 or 30 games. And so I think that's like a totally fair thing to, to, to consider. And I think a lot of people make their decisions based on that. Super, super fair. It's just not what I, what went into it for me. Also that said, I still had Mitchell and Conley in there with Gobert too. So like three might be a lot, a lot. And that's, that's a fair point to argue, but I, I think there's room for all those guys it just is going to leave somebody else on the outside looking in. Well, look, Justin already came up with a very elegant solution, which was you give Rudy Gobert two spots. One of them is Rudy Gobert. <laughs> one of them is Mike Conley on Donovan Mitchell's shoulders in a trench coat. <laughs> and right. everybody's in the All-Star game. Sure. There you go. I mean, he needs two airplane seats, right? So give him two spots. Big guy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just have the Suns conversation now because this, this, this is also a pretty thorny subject. Um, Sharks, you wrote about Booker today on the website. Um, Where do you fall in terms of how many Suns get in and which one gets in if it's only one? So I, as I've been looking at it, I kind of have Booker and Donovan in and I'm looking at Conley for Paul as first Paul for the last spot. But it seems like it's mostly Booker versus Paul and they're most of the, and as I was like, my first start of the article, I didn't really have a strong opinion, but as I really kind of got into it, I really, I really talked myself into Booker. I think number one, if you're the Suns, you'd better freaking hope Booker makes the all-star team. Because he is not going to be happy that this 35-year-old came in and just took his shine, right? Like, he's ready to make all-star games. Two, it really sucks for him because he spent his whole career hearing, you put up empty stats on a bad team. And now he's putting up slightly worse stats on a really good team. And now it's like, your stats aren't good enough, peace. So he's kind of like, how are you going to do it either way? As for the argument about Booker and Paul, what I came down to is this. I think Booker is just more versatile offensively than Paul, right? So like a lot of people are saying, okay, well, Paul controls the game. Paul has more assists. That's not because Booker can't run point and distribute the ball. The numbers are kind of crazy. Booker without Paul this year is plus 13. Like he can run point perfectly fine. The problem is if Booker's running point, what is Chris Paul doing? Whereas the reverse of that is when Chris Paul is running point, Booker's moving off the ball, getting buckets at will, and being a secondary playmaker. So to me... You put that together, I feel like his versatility is what's allowed Paul to succeed and really push the Suns over the top. And then the final point, to go back to our scoring thing, he's getting like 25 points a game, whereas Paul's getting 16. I think that does matter. I think that's too easily overlooked. I can't argue any of that. And at the same time, I like Paul a little bit more for this spot. And it's because I think he's a bit more of a direct driver of what makes the Suns good, which is... They're an organized, professional-level defense, which, frankly, does not have much of anything to do with Devin Booker. And they're a really steady, low-turnover offense, which is Chris Paul's MO. So it's like, what do the Suns look like? They look like a Chris Paul team that featuring Devin Booker. And that's, that's a tough break for Booker, given where he's been and where the Suns have been. And frankly, as you would mentioned, Sharks, where the Suns need him to go and, and what they want his reputation and his game to be. I just fall back to the guy who more closely aligns with the team's success and what they do well, I think. See, I would say the argument to that is that Chris Paul has to have a Chris Paul team, right? We saw in the end of the Houston years when he's not the guy, 
He's not that effective. And OKC and Phoenix, like to make Chris Paul good, he, it's got to be his team. So it's almost like he, he's like being forced into that role because he's actually more limited as a player. But the Houston team, the Houston team almost won the title with a James Harden team featuring Chris. Like I, I, I reject that argument. I think at this stage in his career, there's some truth to his limitations. Like he is who he is in terms of size and style and that stuff. But I don't know. I think I think teams end up as Chris Paul teams because those teams are really good. Yeah, we've seen many Devin Booker teams. They aren't that good. And so, like, I think at a certain point, maybe it's just like being a little reductive, but like the difference with this team this year as opposed to last year is that Chris Paul is here and making sense of all the disparate parts and like all these young guys who have talent. That depends how much you believe in the bubble. Like, to me, I look at the bubble, I saw Devin Booker, a bunch of wings, a very athletic team, and that was going to translate no matter what to the season. But you can disagree on that, obviously. Is this a Cam Johnson team? Every well, every team is a Cam Johnson team. That's exactly uh, right. I was about clear. to say they're they're all Cam Johnson teams when you get right down to it. Um, I think I thread the needle here beautifully because I had uh, Devin Booker as an All Star last year, um, and so this year I'm able to say I think while valuing deeply what Devin Booker brings to the table and agreeing that he is not just somebody who put up empty uh, calorie stats on a bad team for a long time, uh, or certainly at least has not done that the last couple of years. Um, that what when I think about what is most di- directly contributing to the Suns' success so far, it's a little bit more about what Chris Paul is doing for that team, uh, even when he's not scoring the ball, than it is. Uh, and then also the fact that he's become like the crunch time option. Not that Devin Booker could not do that, but Chris Paul is doing that at a really high level still. So there, there are, are you know, d- arguments for that. I think, John, that, that stat that you brought up is crazy where... They're roughly equivalently amazing, whether it's Booker, no Paul or Paul, no Booker. And then they're like not that good uh, when they're uh, in terms of net rating when they're both on the floor together. I know that that's an Aiton thing, but yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's a different conversation, but it's crazy. Booker and Paul, no Aiton is like plus 35 or something. Yeah, it's it's really, really wild. So I think the, the answer is that, uh, you know, Dario Saric should be playing at center for everybody. It's all they're all Dario Saric teams, too. <laughs> Did you guys know that Chris Paul has only missed two free throws his entire year? This doesn't have anything like add any value to the debate here, but that's fucking wild. He's he's taken 71 free throws and he's missed two. Um, But I guess the actual point I want to make here is he's, he has uh, a 50, 40, 97 season going here. He's more efficient than he was last year. The team is better than they were last year. For me, Paul is an easy pick. I would actually put him uh, as the guard spot and not a wild card spot. And then joining him, I have Mitchell and Booker. Uh, Charks, where where did you end up? I, I had it like that too. So I had it Booker, Mitchell, and then choosing between Paul and Conley for the last spot. And I took Paul over Conley. Okay. Rob? I have achieved blogger enlightenment. I am in perfect synchronicity <laughs> with Dan. I'm Conley, Mitchell, Paul. Wow. I just I, they love the jazz. They love their screen assists out there. Guys. I just I just think that you're y'all are gonna have to say some prayers and make some apologies to the to Mike Conley. You're gonna have to, you know, the 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 uh blog cognoscenti are going to be out here like asking, you know, take kind of coming for your heads about Mike Conley. Um again, again, as we go through this, like if you're talking about one of those guys making it making it over another one, like these are insanely small differences and um incredible there's a, a ton of talent to pick from. Do you think they're going to pick Conley? I think they're going to do it because like on the one hand, I can make the case that like, oh, dunks, cool. But on the other hand, like most people in the NBA tend to be saps. And we had that weird thing happen where both Dirk and and Dwayne Wade made the All-Star game as like some sort of like career achievement award. So I could definitely see him making it. I think if it's ever going to happen, this is the set of circumstances in which it's going to, where you are playing really well on a team that's head and shoulders above everybody else in record and net rating and all that stuff, and you haven't done it, and you've been like one of the best players in the league at your position right like below that top tier for a decade and a half. I think this is like the perfect storm for him. And so, uh, you know, I'm a sap too, man. I hope it happens. It does feel like this is kind of the line. Like to me, it was pretty clearly those four guys. And then there's a couple other guys who've had good seasons, but I thought those four are a step above if we're picking these last couple spots. Well, one of those guys I wonder about in regards to the coaches, and that's DeMar DeRozan, who, I mean, for one thing, sometimes the coaches in terms of their reserve selections, honestly, it looks like they just go through the standings and it's like, okay, you get an all-star, you get an all-star going, you know, first through six or seven seeds or so to make sure everybody's got one. 
The Spurs are the sixth place team in the West right now. If they were in the East, they would be the third seed in the East. Like, they've been sneaky good. DeRozan, I honestly think, is having the best season of his career in terms of impact on winning, in terms of the stuff that matters. He's actually having a really good season. I think he, again, in a normal context, might be a pretty deserving candidate. It's just, he's up against this crazy good Jazz team with three credible All-Stars, this really good Suns team with two credible All-Stars. I don't know how you juggle that in a way that makes room for DeRozan. It does seem like if the coaches are picking that Anthony Davis spot, they might pick DeRozan over Zion as like a bit because he's like a small ball power forward, but I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, the argument is that he's a forward now, and so he gets he gets consideration for that spot. Um, yeah, the the the, 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 Sun, the the Spurs being good has a little bit more to do with their second unit. That's something I wrote about that I think actually is going to come out tomorrow, um, that their some of their bench lineups are just killer. Um, but DeRozan, it, it, it's become fashionable and understandable to say like, DeRozan and Aldridge stink and are old, and that's why the Spurs are like middling as opposed to really good. When you remove Aldridge from that equation, DeRozan's been awesome. And so I was going to say Aldridge is very old. DeRozan is getting yeah. DeRozan, DeRozan's, DeRozan has been legit awesome. And when DeRozan has played with some of those uh, reserve lineups, he's been great too. So uh, I would I would be surprised if he made it over Zion if it gets to the commissioner. But uh, from the coach's perspective, yeah, that would not be shocking. I do just love how Zion is the West equivalent of the Zach Levine, Trey Young. Like, oh, this is a really great offensive player who's just awful on defense, but let's get him in the All-Star game. And it makes sense. It's a good case, and it has the benefit of being a nice little narrative bow if Zion is replacing AD yet again in this lineup. Ah. Oh, there you go. So beautiful. Love it, Rob. You're you're just a a pro's artist. That's what I'm here for. Out here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, We'll end it there. Dan, thank you so much for joining us, man. It was so much fun to join a group chat and not have anybody leak anything horrifying about me to the press. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, there's still time here. Um, We'll be back next week. Thank you to John on production. Uh, We will see you next time.